Dr. King, they didn't kill him when he was talking about race, right? You would think if they were going to kill him, they were going to kill him when he was trying to segregate the lunch counter. You know when they killed him? When he started unifying poor people. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get members-only bonus content, please visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Benjamin Dixon Show, Propaganda from Bitch Media, and Dan Savage on the Savage Lovecast. Pundits have been scrambling to explain Hillary Clinton's unexpected loss. Reasons offered include WikiLeaks, fake news, and the FBI. Lately, though, as Adam Johnson writes for FAIR.org, a new culprit has emerged from center and center-left circles, identity politics, and its close cousin, political correctness. So you have Bill Maher saying Democrats, quote, made the white working man feel like your problems aren't real because you're mansplaining and check your privilege, close quote. Democrats' reaction to terrorist attacks, Meyer says, is don't be mean to Muslims, and that's not a good way to get votes. Vox editor Ezra Klein teed up an interview with psychologist John Haight by tweeting, Interesting, John Haight on why diversity, immigration, and multiculturalism are ripping apart Western democracies. Haight's line is that while multiculturalism and diversity have many benefits, they also amplify tribal tendencies. The politics is always about factions, a world in which those factions are based on race or ethnicity rather than economic interests. He says that's the worst possible world. Well, Vox doesn't question this false dichotomy, the idea that economic populism and identity politics are mutually exclusive. But advancing populism, while understanding that particular groups have specific concerns, like freedom from discrimination, has always been a mainstay of left politics. But here we've got the New York Times' David Brooks equating, in the time-honored way, anti-racism with racism. Quote, But it's not only racists who reduce people to a single identity. These days, it's the anti-racists, too. To raise money and mobilize people, advocates play up ethnic categories to an extreme degree. Close quote. Yes, to fight back against social, economic, and physical oppression, people targeted by racists occasionally raise money and mobilize people who, like them, are targeted by racists, by really playing up that whole targeted by racists thing. It's hard to say how pernicious it is to argue that the people made most vulnerable by a Trump victory are to blame for it. Certainly in the face of an upsurge of reactionary politics, it's also helping provide ideological cover for racists and demagogues. Bernie Sanders is the man. And the reason I say that uh, is because he is addressing a issue, an issue head on that drives to the root of the problem in the Democratic Party. And that's a question of race versus class. So Sanders was here in Boston at Berkeley on yesterday and he gave a speech 
and I want to read a couple of uh, portions of his speech. It was in response to a student uh, or a woman in the audience who mentioned that she wanted to be the next Latina American congresswoman for a particular district. And in that context, he be, he began to address her as an individual, but then he extrapolated backwards to the bigger problem that we're facing. Uh, and that's that's the problem of us being willing. And when I say us, I mean people on the left in general, putting a identity only paradigm forward. Where we are not allowing, we are intentionally suffocating a conversation on class as though poverty is not the greatest identity in America, right? Like the one thing that unites so many of us is the fact that we struggle to pay our rent. But I digress. And so let me let, let me let Sanders speak for himself, or at least I'll read um, as soon as I get to, um, here it is. This is uh, some of the comments that he said. He said, quote, let me respond to the question in a way that you may not be happy with. It goes without saying that as we fight to end all forms of discrimination, as we fight to bring more and more women into the political process, Latinos, African-Americans, Native Americans, all of that is enormously important. And count me in as somebody who wants to see that happen. But it is not good enough for someone to say, hey, I'm a Latina. Vote for me. That is not good enough. I have to know whether that Latina is going to stand up with the working class of this country and is going to take on big money interest. He continued. He said, one of the struggles that we're going to have right now, we lay on the table of the Democratic Party. It's not good enough to me to say, okay, well, we've got X number of African-Americans over here. We've got Y number of Latinos. We have Z number of women. We are a diverse party and a diverse nation. Not good enough. We need that diversity that goes without saying that is accepted right now. We've made some progress in getting women into politics. I think we got 20 women in the Senate right now and we need 50 women in the Senate. We need more African-Americans. He continues. But and I'm giving you I'm giving you all of it in context because many media outlets have not. They have given you sound bites. This is the rest of the context. But here's my point. Sanders said. And this is where we're going to we're going to be division. There's going to be division within the Democratic Party. It is not good enough for someone to say, I am a woman. Vote for me. No, that's not good enough. What we need is a woman who has the guts to stand up to Wall Street, to the insurance companies, to the drug companies and to the fossil fuel industry. In other words, one of the struggles that you're going to be seeing in the Democratic Party is whether we go beyond identity politics. I think it's a step forward in America if you have an African-American head or CEO of some major corporation. But you know what? If that guy is going to be shipping jobs out of this country and exploiting his workers, doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot if he's black, white or Latino. You're damn right, Bernie Sanders. Now, people have jumped and basically swear that uh, Bernie Sanders is uh, a secret member of the Klan, right? Of course, I'm being hyperbolic, but this is where they, they cannot receive this message because, one, I think they can't receive it because it's coming from a white man, an old white Jewish man, right? They can't receive it, and I swear if a black 
populace would ever rise from the ranks and use the power of identity politics, we could destroy this identity only politics narrative. But because it's coming from an old white man, it's completely rejected on every level. That's number one. Number two, it's rejected because you have a class of professionals, people who make a living off of telling us that identity is the only thing that matters. Because their identity, apparently, maybe that's what got them their job. I don't know. Right. But they have made a professional career out of silencing the conversation on class and pandering on the conversation of race and gender and other identities. And when you have the bulk of your voices in mainstream media pounding that narrative, suffocating the conversation on class, you are going to get a populace that is just as. Has just as much vitriol towards this message as you see today. You have people who are struggling paycheck to paycheck, rejecting this idea that we should not only look for an, a particular identity and put that identity as the head of a, of, a, of a corporation when that corporation and the activities that that particular identity CEO is doing is detrimental to them. In other words, you have people who are just honky-dory happy that a woman is the CEO of Walmart, for example, but Walmart is not paying living wages. This is what Adolf Reed and um, Noam Chomsky's daughter, forgive me, I don't forget, remember her first name. This is what they coined the phrase neoliberal multiculturalism, right? It's this idea that we want a top 1%. We're totally fine with a top 1% so long as that top 1% has a certain percentage of African-Americans, certain percentage of LGBTQ, certain percentage of women, and it's reflective of how diverse our society is. Never mind that the 1% is plundering the rest of America so long as that 1% can be diverse we're okay with it that's not how intersectionality works because if you are ignoring the greatest intersection that connects us all which is class then you are erasing an identity for your own personal benefit and I don't know how many times we can have this conversation right how many times we have to come to this conversation Sanders literally said we need to do both. Well, he didn't literally say it, but you get what I'm saying. He's saying in this message that we need to focus on both. Identity matters because identity is directly under attack from Republicans and from these neo-Nazis who want their identity to be the sole identity. So, yes, your race, your gender, your orientation, all of that matters. All of that 100% matters, but that cannot be the only thing that matters. And the reason I know you know this is because if all that mattered was race, then Ben Carson, you would be 100% okay with Ben Carson being the secretary of damn education. Why are you not okay with Ben Carson being the secretary of education? He's black, so black people should champion him, right? No. If you were 100% okay with identity being the only thing that mattered, then Sarah Palin should be the Secretary of Commerce. Are you okay with that? Because 
Here, I mean, let's, she's a woman. Let's give her a hand. Let's make her the Secretary of the Treasury. If you have qualms and issues with the fact that Ben Carson could potentially be, and he's not, but he could potentially be the Secretary of Education, and you're not celebrating the mere fact that he's black, then you are capable of doing both and. But you conveniently stop that nuanced approach when we include the conversation about class. Because this is the last category, right? I said, uh, I forgot the other ones I listed, but here's the last category. They don't want to have the conversation about class because it necessarily involves a conversation about tax policy, which necessarily conflicts with the amount of money that they could take home, their disposable income. Let's just be real. I mean, when you make $200,000 a year to write crappy articles, you are interested in getting the lowest tax rate you possibly can. Jamel Bowie uh, said about as much during the primaries when we were talking about um, uh, state education being free. Bernie Sanders was proposing this. He put up the argument that what about all the people whose careers are dependent on those tuitions? Right. And, and the pain that they're going to suffer. Right. So it, it's 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 a clear conflict of interest with the professional class. Me, let's be real. Right. I'm going to save a lot of money with Donald Trump. And you have people who've made a conscious decision to not discuss class because they know damn well for us to address the issue of class, we have to talk about tax policy and we have to have a far more progressive tax code than what we have, which means that if you're making over one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, you're probably going to be paying a lot more in taxes. They do not want to have that conversation. So you have those people who are looking out for their best economic interests who are going to always use their platform to the detriment of the rest of us who are dependent on a class based analysis. And you have those who are using their platforms to pimp their identity because they're the black person at the Washington Post. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Capehart. Uh, You're the black person at Washington Post. So any black story that comes across your table, oh, clearly that's your story, even though you have less in common with people like me who just got out of the working class than Bernie Sanders. I have more in common with the socialist Jew than I do the black man over at the Washington Post who probably hasn't spent now day in a government project housing. But because he's black and he's got the right identity, he gets to be the spokesperson. Both and. Simple as that. Dr. King, he, they didn't kill him when he was talking about race. Right? You would think if they were going to kill him, they were going to kill him when he was trying to segregate the lunch counter. You know when they killed him? When he started unifying poor people, poor white people, poor black people. He started his poor persons campaign. He started unifying them around a message that he said it quote, as best as my ability, I'm going to quote it. It didn't cost the government a dime to desegregate the lunch counter, but you cannot address the issues that we're facing now without a massive redistribution of wealth and power. Shortly thereafter, he was killed. It must be both and. And anyone who's saying otherwise either has a, no, they have a vested interest to do so or 
they are been they have been manipulated by those who have a vested interest to do so. With the holidays upon us, you don't have time to go to the post office. There's traffic, parking, it's going to be packed with everyone mailing their holiday gifts and packages. So what do you do? Use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office, but you can do everything you would do at the post office right from your desk. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer for any letter or package, and then have the mail carrier pick it up. So easy and convenient. Just like 600,000 small business customers, I use Stamps.com myself to run my very very small business out of my parents' home office when I was still in high school. And I wasn't even very busy at the time, but it was still a no-brainer for me to save time avoiding the post office by using stamps.com. And since it is very likely that you are busier now than I was as a lazy teenager, it is also obvious that you should use stamps.com for your shipments as well. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use my promo code BEST for this special offer of a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in BEST. That's Stamps.com and enter BEST. The role race played in the election of Trump is undeniable. According to exit polls, a majority of white men voted for Trump, as did a majority of white women. The need to talk with white people about racism is clear. But having those conversations is often, at best, awkward and, at worst, dangerous. That's where showing up for racial justice comes in. Hi, my name is Heather Kronk. I am one of the co-directors of Showing Up for Racial Justice, also known as Surge, and... We are obsessed with obsessing white folks to organize around racial justice. Personally, I've been thinking a lot about how white people like me can have better and more effective conversations with other white people about racism. I asked Heather for advice on talking about topics like Black Lives Matter and racial inequity and how Donald Trump is hiring white supremacists. Yeah, I mean, we get that question a lot. And that's the thing that I think a lot of folks, a lot of white folks get hung up on. Um, is, you know, not only feeling uncomfortable with having that conversation, but also feeling like they have to get it right, like they have to say all the right things. Um, and that's actually no way to have a real, authentic, uh, honest conversation with folks, right? Like, you're going to say the wrong things, and you're going to feel uncomfortable. Um, and, and we encourage folks to just do it anyway, right? Um, there are, you know, many holidays coming up. Um, folks um, are, are likely going to be spending time with friends, family, biological family, adopted family. And this is a great opportunity to just really lean in to those conversations. Showing up for racial justice is working on some talking points and primers on how to have these conversations that hopefully they'll be publishing in late November. But I asked Heather to walk me through what she's learned. She says the first big thing after not avoiding the conversation itself is to ask questions about what motivated people to vote for Trump. So then you can talk about those policies. One of the reasons why folks voted, white folks voted for Trump is because they thought that he was going to do better for them, uh, especially around uh, the economy. Um, I think there is a lot of fear out there. And what we need to do as, you know, kind of conscious white folks is to pull that apart and to say, you know, well, actually, 
Donald Trump is going to be, you know, far worse for most folks, most white folks, and and all, all, basically all people of color, um, because he actually doesn't believe in shared resources. He doesn't believe in cooperative economics. He doesn't believe in everyone having a pathway to success and stability and and the ability to thrive. He believes in doing exactly what he's done over decades of work, which is to amass wealth himself. That's not good for anyone um, except for a a handful of of folks at the top. I'm so angry and so upset that part of me just wants to say, oh, you voted for Trump. You're racist and misogynistic. Goodbye. I don't want to work on understanding where they're coming from. I don't want to seem like I'm okay with voting for Trump. But then the other part of me is like, no, it's on people like me who will be safest under Trump to have the kind of conversations that can change minds. The strategy of just saying, I'm not talking to you, goodbye, I'm going to outvote you, that didn't work. So one way forward is having those conversations that personally, I find infuriating. There's a little bit of a piece of, you know, folks having, white folks specifically having a responsibility around this, right? Um, But I also also don't think that guilt works in organizing, Um, strategy works in organizing. And what we know doesn't work is avoiding conversations about race, avoiding conversations about class, about gender, about how all of those things intersect. Um, you know, but but let's create space for folks to be able to air. Here's why I'm afraid. And when people air, here's why I'm afraid, then we have an opportunity to dispel that. If we don't, if we pretend that 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 fear doesn't exist, if we pretend that, you know, folks who are feeling economically disenfranchised or who are feeling like, um, you know, folks are going to come in and take all of their stuff and take their livelihood. You know, we, it's, it does us no good to pretend like that doesn't exist. Let's actually air it um, and, and try to pull that apart. Showing up for racial justice is specifically focused on trying to get white people to talk to other white people about race. White people, we often think of ourselves as not part of a racial group. We're the norm and everyone else is other. It's not on everyone to have this kind of conversation. But for people who can, it's on us to help make change. Not all white folks are experiencing this election in the same way, right? So um, I identify as queer. I come out of LGBTQ organizing. And for a lot of queer folks, especially a lot of trans folks, even if you're white, um, especially if you're queer and trans and poor, um, you know, you're experiencing this election and experiencing, um, you know, having these kinds of conversations with friends and family in different ways. And so I would never say to folks, you have to have this conversation. For a lot of folks, that isn't safe for a whole lot of different reasons. Um, but I do think that in the ways that we are able and in the ways that we are able to push ourselves, I think it is important to have these conversations while always, of course, making sure that we're doing that um, in ways that are sustainable, that are safe for ourselves, um, that allow us to have a second conversation and a third conversation. Love your brothers, my Love your sister. Love your brothers. Ooh, yeah. Love your sister. And to tell Admit you've got me thinking You've got me thinking There were times I thought That I was sinking I was sinking But I'll always want to be In that position where I Where I 
can see more clearly. For some people, one of the takeaways from the 2016 election was the importance of what's called intersectionality. The recognition that things like people's race, religion, gender, class, orientation, or immigration status are not isolatable factors. And also that what might be called economic anxiety, for example, can't necessarily be extracted from its racialized expression. Some even dared hope that wider acknowledgement of this might be a kind of silver lining of the election result. Commercial media don't seem to be advancing those sorts of conversations, but that doesn't mean they aren't happening. Social Justice SOS, What Happened, What's Coming, and Why We Must Join Together Against Hate, was the name of a recent online event hosted by the African American Policy Forum, on whose board I serve, I will note. There were a number of speakers included across a range of fields. You can listen to the event on the website aapf.org. Today, we're going to just hear a couple of clips. First up is Sumi Cho, professor and associate dean at DePaul University School of Law. As media ask themselves why their predictions of the presidential election results were so wrong, one of the things we hear most about is polling. Cho talked about how it's not just the interpretation of polls or people lying to pollsters we need to think about, but polling methods themselves can misshape our understanding. While 53% of white women supporting Donald Trump in light of his history, comments, and actions is truly astounding and disturbing, I want to suggest that it actually may be worse than has been portrayed because Latinos and Asian American women likely supported Clinton and voted against Trump in far higher numbers than has been reported by the exit polls conducted by the national election pool. So how did this happen? Well, exit poll surveys aren't designed to actually reach representative samples of groups like Asian Americans and Latinos. And so we end up having one major national exit poll conducted for the national election pool, which all the major media outlets use. And the method that they use is conducted by Edison Research in particular. The method they use surveys Asian Americans and Latinos in a way that's statistically more likely to capture Republicans. How? Well, mainstream pollsters too often use too small a sample to be reliable. They don't construct samples that reflect the diversity within those communities. And they don't conduct interviews in Asian languages or Spanish at the first contact or ever. And so these practices taken together bias the sample because they tend to miss those in the polls that are more likely to be Democrats, that is immigrants, native language dominant, lower SES, younger voters. And so if you compare what's been said about the Latino vote, for example, by the national election poll, it said that they voted 29% for Trump, which is truly surprising since he wants to build a wall right, to keep them out, you know, and 65% for Clinton. But if you look at the Latino decision polling, which was done by a number of coalitional groups that have expertise in reaching out to this community, it's more like 79% Clinton, 18% Trump. And when you look at Latinas, it's even higher, of course, with the gender gap, 86% Clinton, 12% Trump. APA population, similarly, instead of 65% 
Clinton 29 Trump, it was really 75 19. And when you look at women, 79 17. So finally, if you break out Jewish women from the category of white women, Jews voted 71 24 for Clinton over Trump, leaving white Protestant women voting 32% Clinton, 64% Trump. And so when you go into the narratives, you know, I think there's all these theses out that's being captured by like the New York Times trying to figure out what it did wrong in missing this election. And so you hear these dominant narratives of, oh, there's a sort of Ivanka voter, or there's this kind of good father, beautiful family thesis, or I want my daughter to be a successful businessman type of thesis. But buried at the back of that same New York Times article on the women who helped Donald Trump's victory, it finally gets to the issue of race, if you're still reading. And it states that these white women supporters of Trump are troubled by an America that seems to have embraced multiculturalism and political correctness without question. And they said they didn't understand the Black Lives Matter movement. They wondered why Democrats seemed so fixated on transgender access to bathrooms and tended to be enraged at the way veterans are treated and violence directed at the police and that they were concerned about immigration and the threat of terrorism. And so it helps explain why all of the sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic comments and actions never disqualified Trump from being eligible to be president for these voters because of their commitment to a very racialized patriarchy. That was DePaul University law professor Sumi Cho. Well, demographics help us highlight differing experiences, but intersectionality recognizes that people have multiple identities and can face multi-layered sorts of discrimination. All of the speakers emphasize the importance of seeing people whole and connecting across difference. That's something pundits often talk about, but organizers actually do. One such organizer is Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Here's some of what she had to say. I think that one of the things that is scaring me is that I'm starting to see the left as a broad kind of swath move back into some pretty dangerous tendencies. So one dangerous tendency is to to assume that because we are terrified, anxious, fearful, and scared, quite frankly, of what the potential of this kind of not just administration, but political terrain means for our communities right now and in the intermediate term and in the long term, there's a tendency that we then have to go back into our silos. So we are under attack. My particular group is under attack. I don't have time to think about what your group is dealing with. I just need to fight like hell to save my own people. And that is the worst possible thing that we could be doing right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, is, there is no better time than now for us to really figure mm-hmm. out how to work intersectional politics in practice. And with that, we also need to make sure that we are not just talking to people who already agree with us, but that we are reaching out to folks who, quite frankly, I mean, the comments earlier about people saying, well, I'm confused about what is the Black Lives Matter movement? I'm upset about why people care about why trans people should be able to use bathrooms. We need to do a better job of reaching Mm -hmm. out to those folks and making sure that our vision also 
is a vision for them. And that is different from capitulating to the worst tendencies of this moment. Under no circumstance should we normalize, capitulate, negotiate with, compromise with any vision that removes humanity from anybody. (laughs) Um, And we need to be really careful about that because I do think that there's a failed strategy, right, that people call playing for the center, but what they actually mean is camouflaging themselves as part of the right, and they're very different Mm -hmm. things. I mean, when you look at those maps, it is very clear what we need to be doing. (laughs) And to me, I think one thing we've got to be really, really clear and strong on is that there is nothing at all that replaces grassroots organizing. Absolutely nothing at all. And I think it's important for us to continue to think about how do we use technology-based tools to reach more people, but it is not a substitute for having real conversations with folks in real plain language, right, that really puts out not only what's at stake, which we're really good at, we are really good at sounding the alarm and being like, we're about to run over a cliff, but we're not that great yet. And we need to get much better about being able to talk about what's on the other side and really paint that picture in a way that people can taste, touch, feel, and smell. Another thing that I think is really important here is to do both. So as Mary Frances said, absolutely 100% active opposition to all of the reactionary policies and practices that are moving in real time right now. But that deep organizing piece, I think we also need to make sure that we are locating that appropriately in the Midwest and in the South and being led by Mm -hmm. folks who have been doing that organizing, isolated from the rest of the country, and quite frankly, overshadowed by the the visions and the strategies that are coming from people on the coast. We all have something to contribute, but I think if we're going to get real about what strategies will work to change what that map looks like, it absolutely needs to be led by folk who have been treading water in this landscape for a long time before the rest of us Mm -hmm. started to really feel it, touch it, taste it, etc. That was Alicia Garza of Black Lives Matter. You can find the full Social Justice SOS webinar on the African American Policy Forum website, aapf.org. Clearly, this is a stressful time. Not only did we just have the election, but now we've been thrown right into the deep end of the holidays. But on top of just the stress, as someone who's suffered on and off from headaches, shoulder tension, and minor back problems, I've had an occasional need for massage therapies, even in the best of times. So it is great to have been introduced to Soothe right now. They make it easier than ever to find time to relax. Whether you're at home, work, or traveling, Soothe delivers a licensed and thoroughly vetted massage therapist to your door in as little as an hour. When it's time for your massage, they will arrive with all of the essentials for a quality spa experience, including table, fresh linens, music, oils, and lotions. You can book your massage in less than 10 seconds on their mobile app or their website at soothe.com. That's S-O-O-T-H-E.com. And this week, my listeners can get $30 toward their first massage with Soothe by entering the promo code BEST at checkout. Just search for Soothe in the App Store or Google Play Store to download the app or go to 
www.soothe.com and schedule your appointment today. That's soothe.com, promo code BEST, for $30 towards your first massage. Soothe, massage delivered to you. Last night, we did a segment on identity-only politics versus um, identity plus class. And, you know, to my dismay, this narrative is still going. I mean, of course, one, no matter what we do, this is going to be a continuous uphill battle that we have to fight every single day. Uh, and it's important that we fight it because you can't, you can't, you can't thoroughly discuss the problems of race in America without discussing the problems of the absence of wealth in the black community. You can't discuss race without discussing class, not adequately. You can't discuss the different problems in different segments of society unless you talk about the class element. Likewise, you can't talk about class unless you talk about race. We, you, you've got that. We have an uphill battle because this narrative is so juicy. This narrative is so rich and they can, they can get clicks galore off of this divide in the Democratic Party. And that's quite literally what people are doing. Even people who I think mean well. Some people I follow on Twitter, I think, mean well generally. Um, and they're sincere about the push for social justice and uh, the plight of African-Americans. I think they mean well. Um, and I just think that they're missing the forest for the trees. All that to say, we've, we've got to master both sides. We, you, me, you, you listening. White progressives, black progressives, uh, every ethnicity, every race, every religion, we have to master both sides masterfully. We need to be uh, conversant on race, identity, as well as class. If you've mastered race, and I'm going to use that word loosely. But if you've mastered the conversation about identity, then we need you to be the voice on class. Figure out your voice. Figure out your position. Figure out how you can argue the necessity for us to address the greatest intersection, the greatest identity in America, which is class and poverty, the working class. And how can we undo this, this desire to paint the working class as only being white, as if there are no black or Latino working class members. So if you're mastered race, master class. If you are a socialist or whatever variation thereof, Marxist, whatever, and you've mastered the conversation about class, we need you, especially if you're white, to be not the spokesperson, but to be very conversant, very informed, very intelligent, and be able to deliver why it's necessary for us to discuss identity, specifically race. If you're cis, be able to, understand, be, able to be conversant on gender identities. Be, be able to identify. I don't, we don't need anybody to run out and be the spokesperson. Right. Let's, let's put that out. For us. We don't we don't need we don't need men to go and be the spokespeople for for feminism. We don't. We just need you to understand enough not to fall into the pitfalls and the traps that people like uh, started to name some people like those people have set for us. We got to master all the above. 
We need to set the example, the model of how we do both and. Which led me to, I'm like, I'm always trying to see how do I reduce things to, how do I make things very simple? How do I make things very plain? Because sometimes we make things too complicated. And right now it seems like I really just thought, and it didn't take me long, right? And, and I always want to bring back up what uh, one of our regular callers, Umar, says, keep it simple. How do we clearly, concisely, and quickly convey, sorry for the alliteration, the message of why identity-only politics doesn't work? So that led me to a survey this morning. And it wasn't, I didn't intend for it to get this many results, but it did. And I want to share some of the results of the survey that I uh, threw out there this, meant, this morning. Um, on your screen. I gave some examples. Example number one, an intersectional black progressive CEO outsource your job and now you're homeless. Do you think, A, it's okay because they're black? B, they'd be a good president. C, I just should have worked harder. Or D, identity only isn't enough. Out of that survey, 1,700 people, uh, almost 1,800 people participated. And clearly the answer is D, identity only only is not enough. There's still some time if you're listening uh, for you to go and participate in that survey. Second question. The questions are more important than anything else than how many people participated. A woman of color oversees the implementation of stop and frisk and leads to draconian crackdowns on communities of color. Do you think a it's okay because she's a person of color? Or do you think I like my oppressors to be people of color? See, I should address better respectability politics or D identity only is not enough. Clearly identity only is not enough. Do we really give a pass to someone who is hurting our community just because they are a person of color? Because if you don't do that, then you clearly understand that identity only politics is not enough. Two more and then we're out of here. An LGBTQ CEO dumps toxic waste on native tribal lands. Do you think, oh, the LGBT CEO is oppressed? It's just tribal lands. This is the price of progress or identity only isn't enough. You do not get a pass for doing shitty stuff to people simply because you have an identity that has been oppressed. I repeat. You do not get a pass for doing shitty things to people simply because your identity has been one that has been historically oppressed. Identity politics only is not enough. Last but not least, my favorite, a queer person of color carries out daily dronings in Muslim nations. Do you think, hey, we've made progress? B. Droning must be okay now because it's a queer person of color doing it. D or C rather, like someone said on Twitter, if you're mad, go start a charity, go start a foundation or D identity politics only is not enough. Clearly identity politics is not enough. Identity politics is necessary. Anybody in my audience who doesn't think it's necessary and you think I'm full of shit because I say it's necessary. You should not be in my audience. Unless you're a sadist and you just like to punish yourself. You should not be about because identity is important. It's a part of our lives that we cannot separate and we should not separate it. But it's not enough. I do not want a CEO 
who is outsourcing working class jobs or professional class jobs and he get a pat on the back because he's a black man. Hell no. I do not. We, we should not give a pass to people and say that they are progressive simply because they have an identity that has been historically oppressed. Sometimes the people who have been historically oppressed are the greatest tools for oppression. Oh, oppression, you prey on us when we sleep. Oppression, you chase after the tired, the poor, the weak. Oppression, you know you mean only harm. Oppression, you reach out with your long arm. But oppression, let you near me Ah, oh, no Oppression You shall learn to fear me Yes, you will Like a lot of you, I spent a lot of time despairing this week and my fair share of time weeping this week and I got a text from a friend right when I was felt like I was pulling it together felt like I might be moving out of the spontaneous weeping phase of grieving this election and this calamity that has really been visited upon our democracy, our republic, and the world. When I got a text, I got a text, I got a text from a friend who told me that her son, who is Mexican, Mexican descent, Mexican heritage, as is her wife, said to his moms that he wished he wasn't Mexican because the president would like him then. And I was gutted by that. Because I know this kid. I know this little kid. And he's a wonderful little kid growing up in a really cool city, Alex, in Portland, Oregon. He's a terrific kid. And for this kid to have to face the next four years with this sense of not just estrangement, but endangerment. Because the most powerful man in the world, this orange shit mountain that somehow won this election, has it in for him that this six-year-old kid, is picking up enough of the news and enough of the chatter and enough of the zeitgeist to realize that that is a horrible thing that has been done to that child. And I ache for that child. There are children all over the country who are hurting in that same way. There are adults all over the country who are fearful in that same way. I am one of them. There are adults facing more immediate threats from the incoming Trump administration than I am facing or my family is facing. But I recognize that there are people of color out there, Mexican immigrants, black people, brown people, Muslims, who are in much more immediate danger. There have been racist and Islamophobic attacks on people of color and Muslims all over the country in the wake of Donald Trump's election. It has unleashed, it has untethered something that we thought was tied up and in the corner, not safely so, Racism, sexism, xenophobia were present and damaging, but it felt for a time, perhaps, to some small extent contained, not safely contained. Racism, sexism, xenophobia has victims. People are harmed by it daily in this country. But now, now it feels it is off the chain and unleashed in a way that feels like we're in some nightmare replay of some awful D.W. Griffith movie from 80 fucking years ago. And it is legitimately terrifying. So terrifying. People are weeping in the streets. So terrifying that six year old boys growing up in same sex 
couple of households in Portland, Oregon, that they are fearful. And I am fearful. And I'm sure a lot of you are fearful. And in a way, the fear is more acute with Donald J. Trump. A lot of us felt the same shock and disappointment and anger and grief when George W. Bush got reelected or elected, depending on your point of view, in 2004. But as awful as George W. Bush was and is, he oscillated within a certain predictable band of Republican awfulness. We knew what we could expect as awful as it might be from George W. Bush. We do not know what we can expect or how awful things might get under Donald J. Trump. Perhaps it is some small comfort that as he assembles his cabinet of horrors, that he is stocking it with familiar Republican shit-eating, shit-grinning faces. That maybe there will be some predictability there. Maybe Trump will oscillate within that same band of Republican awfulness that we are familiar with from the administrations of George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, and Ronald fucking Reagan. Or maybe he's going to visit a new brand of awfulness upon this country. We do not yet know. What we do know is that we got through Reagan. Don't say we survived Reagan, because you know what? A lot of people I know didn't survive Reagan. We got through H.W. Bush. We got through George W. Bush. Didn't all survive, but we got through it. And we got through it not by giving up. We got through it not by moving away. We got through it not by ceding an inch. We got through it by organizing and fighting back. And as awful as we all felt in 2004 when George W. Bush got elected or reelected, depending on your point of view, you know what happened four fucking years later? We elected Barack Obama. We can turn things around if we don't give up. We can turn things around if we organize and if we fight back. And one of the most important ways that we have to fight back right now are in the cities. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. In any other democracy in the world, as Lawrence O'Donnell pointed out on MSNBC the other night, in any other country in the world, the popular vote, you know what that's called? The vote. In any other democracy, she would be president. Winning the popular vote means winning the election because the popular vote is the vote. Winning the popular vote, winning the vote means winning the election. Not here because of the anti-democratic Electoral College. But we are the majority. People who voted against Trump are the majority. Hillary Clinton got more votes by millions than Trump did. Millions plural than Trump did. So when you look around this country where you live today, please don't feel estranged from it. Please don't feel like you are the outlier. Please don't feel like you are the alien. You are the majority. We are the mainstream. And when Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, you know how she won it? She won it with the cities. Cities are liberal and progressive and diverse and forward-thinking. My son, who I mentioned a couple of podcasts ago, and how proud I was of him for voting in his first presidential election at 18 and getting to vote in his first presidential election for a woman, he texted me on the night of the election. In shock, he texted me to say, but she had every major city. And I wrote him back and said, cities are democratic and diverse. It's harder to convince people to hate and fear people they actually know and interact with every day. That's what we have in cities, and that's what we're going to defend. Big cities, big city mayors, big city residents, big city voters, we are the front lines of the resistance to Donald J. Trump. And we have to pledge right now, all of us, that we are going to stay engaged and stay in the fight. We are not going to walk off the field. We are not going to cede an inch. That we are going to fight for every right 
guaranteed us. We are going to fight for every individual. We're going to fight for the rights of our immigrant friends, neighbors, and coworkers. And we're going to fight for the rights of our Muslim friends, neighbors, and coworkers, and our trans friends, neighbors, and coworkers, and our lesbian and gay friends, neighbors, and coworkers. We're going to fight for the rights and the families of six-year-olds growing up in Portland, Oregon, in brown skin, who feel endangered and threatened now by this monster who is moving in to the Oval Office. And we can do that starting in the cities. You want something to do? You want something to get off your ass and do? Get off your ass and make a donation to the American Civil Liberties Union right now. Join the American Civil Liberties Union right now. The Republicans have the Senate, the House, the White House, and soon they may have the Supreme Court. We need the American Civil Liberties Union to hire as many lawyers as it's going to take to defend the Constitution and our rights and the rights of our friends and neighbors who are going to be targeted by the Trump administration. And also, you know what you can do right now in the cities? You can get in the face of your mayor, get in the face of your elected representatives on the local level, your city council members, your county council members, and you demand that they pledge not to allow local police departments, local law enforcement to participate in any roundups, any persecutions of our immigrant friends, neighbors, documented or undocumented, of our Muslim friends and neighbors, refugee, native born or immigrant or anyone else that we will resist. And it's the cities, the cities that voted overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton that will resist, that will lead the resistance, that will turn the tide. As I've said before in the show, there is no such thing as a blue state. There are only red states, but some red states have big blue cities in them that flip those states into the Democratic column. Washington state is a red state geographically, but look at Seattle and King County, big and blue enough to flip Washington into the Democratic column. Same thing with Illinois. Same thing with California. Same thing with Oregon. It is the cities that vote for liberal, progressive, diverse values. And it's the cities that will save America. It was the cities and voters in the cities that elected Barack Obama in 2008. It was the cities in 2016 that awarded Hillary Clinton the majority of the popular vote. And it is the cities that in 2020 will turf Donald J. Trump and his clown show of horrors out of the White House. And it is the cities, if we turn up and if we vote in 2018, that will take back the Senate. House might not be in reach, but we can take back the Senate if we organize, if we vote, if we fight. Everything that's upsetting you today, and I am upset today, everything that's upsetting you today will only get worse. You will only be more upset in 2018 and 2020 if you walk off the field. If you despair, do not despair. Wallow. I have been wallowing this week. It has been a week of whatever I want to eat. It has been a week of whatever I want to drink. It has been a week of whatever I want to watch. And it hasn't been the news that I've been watching. We have been having a wallow at our house. You have a good wallow and a good cry at your house. You hug your kids. You let your friends and neighbors Know that you have their backs, particularly your friends and neighbors who are people of color if you are not a person of color yourself. And then you get up off your ass and you fight. 
That's what I intend to do with the tools that I have at my disposal, which includes this podcast. Pledge to do the same. Look at the money you donated last year and see if you can't squeeze out a little bit more. Now is the time to keep voting. You know, we voted with our ballots on Tuesday of last week. Now we get to vote with our checkbooks. We can continue to express. We can continue to demonstrate our liberal and progressive values and our commitment to a civil and just and democratic and constitutional society with our checkbooks, with our money. I am writing large checks this week to the American Civil Liberties Union, to Planned Parenthood, to the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and to the Lambda Legal. You don't have to donate to the same groups I am, but please find the groups that are doing the work that needs to be done over the next two to four years and write that check. And it doesn't have to be a large check to be worth it. The numbers of donors when it comes to organizations, particularly like Planned Parenthood, matter as much as the amount of the donations that those numbers made. Five, 10, 20 bucks matters. Join, donate, fight. Wallow first. I will admit I have been wallowing. I'm not guilting you. If you have been having a good wallow, I've been having a good wallow myself. We are a news junkie household. We have not opened the New York Times, the blue blag on the porch. We have not torn that open since Wednesday morning. We have not had news radio on since Wednesday morning. We have not watched a cable news broadcast since Wednesday morning. We are taking some time. We are engaging in acts of self-care. You should do the same. But just like I've advised people who are grieving the end of a relationship, at a certain point, it requires an act of will to leave the house, to stop wallowing, to get up and get out there and get on with it. If you're suffering a horrible breakup, get on with your romantic life. Get on with your social life. Suffering a political calamity like this, get on with it means get on with your political engagement. Get on with your political life. You can't disengage. Get up off the floor and fight. We just heard clips today from Counterspin shaming the pundits who blame Trump's election on those most vulnerable to his presidency. Benjamin Dixon highlighted Bernie Sanders' speech drawing the connection between and importance of both identity and class. Propaganda had a discussion about how to open up the conversation about the intersection of class, race, gender, sexuality, etc. Ben Dixon came back the next day on his show to drive the point home even harder that although identity is incredibly important, identity-only politics is simply not enough. And finally, we just heard Dan Savage rally the troops to fight on the side of those who will be most hurt by a Trump presidency. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hello, best of the left. This is Lee Turner. I'm a blogger from San Diego. You asked for thoughts on the show in other words, and here goes. I'm a delusional white male seeking America. I woke up white today, and I've come to understand what this means now, because I thought I was just lucky, but nope. Turns out that the hand I was dealt is an easy bluff, as in 
the cards that I hold. I didn't know that whiteness was such an advantage. That was until I saw what gross misuse that very advantage can affect following the rise of the Donald. It's clear that whiteness was losing its value. This is the clearest connection I can make given what is acceptable behavior of white males such as the president-elect. So now I call bluff simply because I now realize how much influence I too can have simply being, you know, white, cisgendered male and, well, frankly, knowing how to code switch to a masculine persona. Words cause this rift, and they can actually hurt. I know because I was bullied a lot. It's death by a thousand cuts. Sharp words give rise to reactions, however volatile. Divisive language is where it begins, but the rift ends with violence. The good thing about swords is they cut both ways. That's what, when you look at the word sword and the word word, that's why they're so similar, But that's what we must count on now. Words are what has divided us, and I personally intend to lean forward to better understand how to use my whiteness to subvert all lessening of human value. That's it for now. Love the show. Keep leaning forward. Hey, Jay. This is Chris. I'm uh, I'm calling from Littleton, Colorado. You had... You had... I think it was Thomas Frank, I believe was his name. And uh, full disclosure, I listened to Listen Liberal on Audible. Um, and uh, I recommend everybody listening, any, anybody who can get a hold of it, listen to it or read it. Uh, it's a great description of what has happened with the Democratic Party. And I think we need to stop, you know, there's, again, I addressed the racism issue and um, we're all, you know, did, are all Trump rate, um Trump voters racist? No, but more than likely the racists did vote for Trump. So we've got a, the the big thing is, and uh, they've said this, and I know Bernie Sanders has said this that you know it's, we need to be the Democrats need to become a working class party again. The working class of America has gotten the shaft in the last thirty to forty years, and we need to bring them back in the fold. And one thing. I had a criticism of Bernie Sanders' campaign. Don't get me wrong. I love Bernie. Supported him 100%. Canvassed for him when my neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods made calls, all that. But he and most of the left have been saying for a long time, well, you know, one of his platforms was, let's make college tuition free. And I agree. I agree 100%. If somebody has the brains and can make it in college... Money should not be a problem, so we should make college tuition, uh, make colleges, public colleges, tuition free, as he said. But keep in mind that I know that I went to high school in the '80s, and I think it's been this way for even longer than that. Um, college has been sold to everyone as a way out of that working class lifestyle. It was literally told to me, "Don't go be a working stiff, you know. Don't be a plumber or something like that." My dad is a union sheet metal worker. You know, my mom worked her way up from a secretary to a project manager in the same company. You know, they never went to college. But I was told, go to college so you weren't some working stiff. Just get a degree in something, and then you can have some cushy office job and be somebody. You know, so perhaps we should stop telling the, the working class of America, you know, that, you know, maybe go to college and get out of that lifestyle. The one thing is, also with that is, and there's, this is hard to say, especially from coming from somebody in politics, but college isn't for everybody. And we need to realize that. That's not because they're stupid. That's not because they can't get the concepts. But that sort, you know, that type of education is not. 
for them. That's not where they thrive. And there's nothing, you know, we need to stop saying that, every, you know, I guess we need to stop pinpointing on college and making it, you know, the way to, uh, to a uh, decent lifestyle because you can make good money. Again, my parents never went to college. My dad was a union chief metal worker. We lived pretty, pretty decently. They made good money. You know, so in that, you know, again, as I was saying, we need to stop doing that. And perhaps, you know, we can say, hey, what about trade schools? We're losing skilled tradesmen like crazy in this country. And the reality is we're always going to need plumbers. We're always going to need pipe fitters. We're always going to need welders, electricians. The fact that we can go to a switch, flip it, and a light comes on is pretty cool. When it doesn't, what do we do? We're willing to pay any sort of money to get it fixed. What about when your toilet doesn't flush? How much will you pay to get that fixed? You know, so we need to, you know, we need to stop again. Working class is perfectly okay because you contribute to this country too. Why can't we say that? And that dovetails nicely into other aspects of you know the left or you know Sanders campaign. I think Hillary even picked up on it, and even Trump has been has said you know our infrastructure is falling apart and we need to you know rebuild it. Trump's not going to be able to do it with his other policies, but. If in fact we do need to rebuild our infrastructure, you know, yes, we need talented engineers, talented, qualified engineers uh, designing those bridges and designing those airports and rail systems and all this other great stuff. But you know what we also need? I want a qualified welder putting that bridge together. That welder is just as important as the engineer who designed it. If we can at least, you know, stop saying, hey, you know, go to, if we can get off our high horse and say, hey, you know, you get your hands dirty and you work, you know, and every day and you're in the trenches and all that. Well, you know, you're, we got to kind of bridge that gap between the, you know, person who's making minimum wage at McDonald's and the quote professional class and find out that there are people right in between that, that, that matter to this country and have not felt like they've mattered. And that's, you know, I, we can all say, Hey, you know, it's not about feelings. It's about issues, but look at, you know, we had one guy who was a demagogue come out and say, hey, I actually care about you people and I'm your voice and say, those quote, every, you know, what was the big thing? Everybody said, Trump says it like it is. He says it like it, you know, it needs to be said, you know, saying the wrong things. But nevertheless, you know, it's something to think about. I'm not, you know, the working class of America did literally build this country. And Mike Rowe said it on his show, Dirty Jobs. These are the people that make civilized life possible. So we need to kind of get them on board with our cause, you know, and say that, you know, whether you're a college-educated engineer or a philosopher or what have you, 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 know, you matter in this country, and I think that's where we've kind of gone wrong. So uh, thanks, Jay. Keep up the great work. Love you. Thanks. Hi, it's Gary, Washington, D.C. I hope you caught the first part of that message. I'm not sure if it got caught off. But um, basically, I was just asking, how do we keep America free of this wall between us and Mexico? And how do I actually protect the civil rights of my Muslim American citizens and friends? Do we write to our senators, our Congress people? Um, are there specific groups working on these things? Like, I'm not sure who to go to or what to do. So I just thought I'd get your feedback on it. And um, if you could share that on the show, that would be great. And again, uh, thanks for uh, keeping uh, the press free and in integrity. And I'm doubling my monthly contribution. Um, it's not much, $6 to $12 a month. I wish I could do more, but um, thank you for all the work that you do. Bye. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. I have several things to talk about today. First of all, uh, in response directly to the voicemail we just heard, and I was going to tell you this anyways, uh, your task number one, uh, today's activism is just a very informal activism segment. It is that you should definitely, absolutely, positively go listen to the newest episode from Propaganda. Uh, we heard a clip from them today. Uh, their new episode is called 10 Ways to Resist Donald Trump, and it is basically an hour-long activism segment. So they break down how to respond to everything from immigration to LGBTQ to religious tolerance, reproductive rights, media, and even just direct strategies for how to get your representative's attention. So uh, we just should flood their podcast feed. They should look at their download numbers and say, what the hell just happened to this new episode? Because whether you have room for a new podcast in your life or not, at the very least, just go get this one brand new episode from Propaganda, 10 Ways to Resist Donald Trump. And uh, it's like activism to fill your life for a month. Number two, Keep those responses about explainer voicemails coming in. Uh, personally, I, I should have mentioned this in the previous episode, but in the last episode, we heard from Dave in Olympia. He, he had an explainer, and that one totally clarified some things for me. He, he connected some dots that I knew about, uh, some, some, the, you know, the concepts of allyship and the economic concepts we've been talking about uh, after the election. And he, he sort of tied these concepts together and I, I loved it. It really clarified some things for me. Um, I, I would love to hear other people's thoughts about his message. Uh, so if you have thoughts about his or any other of these recent explainer calls, call in the number again, 202-999-3991. And, and of course, I'm still uh, looking for more of these explainers. If, you, if you've heard something on the show and you think you can explain something you've heard in a slightly different way, have a different angle on it, call in. We'll get it on the show and see if we can clarify things for people. Uh, it's all part of an experiment, and now I'm interested, especially in hearing how it's going. If if these explainers are actually, you know, helping you. Third today, uh, I want to clarify something about the premise of today's episode. I, I want to be really clear that I do not think that there is a lot of confusion among progressives who focus on identity politics about the need to continue to pursue progressive economic policies. Uh, my guess is that progressive economics is sort of just taken as a given now. You know, yeah, we had FDR with the New Deal, LBJ with the Great Society and the War on Poverty. We had uh, MLK with his Poor People's Campaign. So yes, obviously, progressives are in favor of progressive economics. Uh, those who decide to become specifically anti-racism activists or LGBTQ activists or gender equality activists are trying to add an additional layer to the progressive movement, not replace the old one. I mean, at the, at the very least, for the most part, that's the case. So the problem, I think, is that the Democratic Party lost its way 
decades ago, and they really did leave those progressive economics behind in favor of this kind of watered-down conservatism in the form of neoliberalism ever since, you know, Clinton, uh, you know, the first Clinton, or even before that. Uh, so people look around today and they see that there's this vibrant movement against racism and sexism and several other forms of discrimination but there isn't this same vibrant movement for fundamental change to our deeply regressive economic structures like there was before. So they conclude, they think to themselves, well, I guess all this focus on anti-discrimination must have somehow edged out and redirected the focus on economics that we used to have, which is absurd. The Democrats turned away from progressive economics all on their own, starting back in the 70s and 80s after the first Supreme Court rulings allowed vast amounts of corporate money into politics. So the Democrats started feeling like they needed to cozy up with the banks to compete with the Republicans who were already cozying up with a bunch of other industries. So uh, turning away from progressive economics had nothing to do with a newfound focus on fighting discrimination. And I think most people have always felt that we should be doing both. Uh, in, in fact, though, it goes deeper than that. The, there is a link there, but it, it sort of goes the other way. The only reason Democrats are willing to take up fights about anti-discrimination is because they don't conflict with moneyed interests. So, for instance, it was sort of easy to see gay marriage as inevitable for a long time because, whether you realize this or not, is because there was no big corporate backing of the anti-gay side of that debate. There was no money to be made opposing gay marriage. So even with the new so-called bathroom bills, corporate America comes out, by and large, on the side of anti-discrimination. They don't want to offend their customers, so they're pretty much going to be on the side of anti-discrimination. So it's going to take time, but that fight will almost inevitably come out our way as well. So it's the times when the corporate interests line up against the Democrats that we know we have to fight all the harder because we know we can't depend on them to fight for us. So just don't get the wrong idea. Like, I think there are a lot of people out there demanding that we stop talking about economic justice to focus solely on social justice, because I think almost all clear thinkers on this issue understand that those issues are inextricably intertwined and need to be tackled together, just like Martin Luther King did. It's not like this is a new idea. Okay, two last very quick things before I go. Uh, you know, tis the season. I just want to mention that I would love it if you use my Amazon link, if you have any holiday shopping to do, you know, or any other shopping. Uh, it, it really is enormously helpful to the show. It's on the sidebar at bestofleft.com. You'll find the link to Amazon and you can choose the US, Canadian, or UK stores. So just click through to your store and then bookmark that link for all future purchases. It is a brilliant way to support the show, like forever going forward. Um, to be clear, I'm not a big fan of Amazon, nor am I a fan of overconsumption, but this is a subversive way to redirect some of that corporate cash that they would be getting anyways, and then give it to the progressive media instead. And finally, 
uh, it is still a great time to become a member. Maybe while you're bookmarking that Amazon link, you can head over to the Contribute tab and sign up for a recurring donation. A huge thanks to everyone who has been signing up or increasing their donations recently. That really is, at its core, what this show depends on, and we're in this turbulent time right now when a lot of other people are going to have to cancel, so it's great to see people stepping up to fill that gap if they're in a position to do that. Um, and so the latest members show, like I said, you get bonus content as a member. So the latest one came out yesterday, and it was me doing sort of a deeper dive on today's topic. I was in the middle of researching today's episode, and I got into a lot more of the details and nuances of this discussion uh, with the help of an article from fair.org. They're the ones who produce Counterspin. And they explained why the whole argument of needing to pull back on identity politics because of the distraction, uh, and that whole argument is nonsensical and completely built on sand. And even if we tried to follow that suggestion, it would only backfire anyway. So if you're not a member and you can't hear me talk about that, then at the very least, you should read the article Lashing Out at Identity Politics, Pundits Blame Trump on Those Most Vulnerable to Trump. That's at fair.org. And now, mercifully, that is it for today. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening, and of course, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and forget who it is we're fooling.